to be with you this morning. As Josh said, I'm one of the pastors at First Free Church. It's even more fun to preach with you this morning because some of you might know, some of you might not, but uh, uh, Brandon is at First Free this morning, so we're doing a little, a little pulpit swap, and you know, between you and me, I think we know who got the better end of that deal, <laughs> right? Well, this morning, we will continue your march through the book of Ephesians as we look today at the power of God. And today we're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And I'd like to begin our time by reading that passage together. Uh, so if you would, please open up a Bible if you can, if you'd like to read along. And please do stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slavery or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, why did Brandon invite some white guy to talk about a passage like this? (laughs) A passage concerning slavery. It seems like a bad joke. And church, we're going to have to loosen up a little bit if we're going to talk about this, right? (laughs) But it's a question we're all asking. And in addressing... This topic of slavery here in this passage, we have a lot of questions, don't we? I mean, why does Paul seem to think of slavery is okay? Why didn't he instruct them to abolish it? Why didn't he, why don't we hear him say, masters don't own people, right? Why didn't Paul write that? And these are fair questions because look, friends, during the time of slavery in America that we had here, American slave owners would read passages just like this, slaves obey your earthly masters, and you know what they'd say? They'd say, look, even Paul thinks it's okay to have slaves. They'd say, look, it's fine. You need to obey. God's telling you to. But but we shouldn't be surprised that people have always used the Bible to their own ends. People have always focused on parts of passages and blinded themselves to others. People have always blinded themselves to the context of what's going on. Because the truth is, at the same time, much of the abolitionist movement was grounded in gospel truths. Annabellum South, they didn't, want, they didn't want their slaves to read the gospels. They didn't want them to read the New Testament because they might think that they're equal. And so this message, needless to say, we, we have a terrible history with slavery and Christianity. In, in our context, in our history. And this cultural history causes problems when we approach a text like this because we import all of our baggage, all of our history, everything that has happened into a passage like this. But Bible commentators, every one of them, one of the first things they want to do is talk about the differences to help us understand the context of the people that Paul is talking to. And, and it would be good for us to take note of them as well. What this first century Mediterranean world looked like. So here are a few differences and distinctives that a scholar, Bart Key, identifies. 
First, he says, you know, racial factors played no role in slavery back then. It played no role. In fact, and also education for slaves was encouraged. It actually increased um, their, their production. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves themselves could own property, including other slaves. Religious and cultural traditions were the same as those who were free. And here's the big one. Here's the kicker, especially for the urban centers. The majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. In fact, the Roman emperor had to give an edict that you couldn't emancipate before 30 because so many were gaining their own freedom. So there's major differences, major differences. And, and while these primarily pertain to urban slavery within Ephesians, th this is the context of Paul's writing. Now, there's a danger to saying there's a lot of differences, right? Because at the same time, we don't want to excuse their form of slavery as something that was okay. At the same time, Mediterranean, first century slavery was still slavery. They were considered the same as property, tools, and livestock. Some were brutalized and even assaulted. And though some were highly specialized, others were not. It was still inhumane. So it's not that it's okay, what Paul's talking about is okay. Rather, it was very vastly different than our context, than our history. And it's important for us to keep that in mind as we approach this passage. So Paul's context is different than our context. But also Paul's purpose is quite a bit different than we think, right? I mean, while this passage involves slavery, it's not about slavery, Right? It's not like Paul, he's not like theorizing about slavery. He's not thinking like, you know, what, what should we think about this institution? You know, what, what, what do you think? That's not what Paul's doing. Rather, Paul is talking to common people about what they will do when they get out of bed tomorrow morning, Monday morning. His message is eminently practical. His words are meant to give instruction on how to live out the Christian life within this empire world, this empire-wide socio-cultural structure. He's giving a practical vision for living out your Christian faith tomorrow, come Monday morning. At the same time, Paul, at the same time, while Paul isn't addressing the institution of slavery, his words dramatically subvert it, dramatically. In fact, many writers have mentioned that the seeds of slavery's demise are planted in these five verses. The commands here, if followed, turn slavery on its head and lead to its demise. The church father, John Chrysostom, wrote around 300, 400 AD, close to the same context, mentions that the institution of slavery that Paul is addressing was created through sin, through the pride of one man over another. And he says that the one who serves, as Paul mentions, is no longer really a slave. Paul is subverting slavery. Listen, to what, Paul tells, tells the slaves to obey their masters, but then changes the perspective when he says, you know, your real master is God. Paul gives the slaves a new identity. Paul gives them dignity that they have never had, even by simply addressing them before the masters or addressing them at all. Within this context, when slavery was talked about, there was never an exhortation to slaves. It was always to masters. Paul is giving dignity where there was none. 
And then Paul tells masters not only to be nice, but to treat the slaves the same way that, that their slaves treat them. A radical call toward mutuality and respect. And then the most subversive thing ever, right? Paul tells masters that they are actually slaves to God just like their slaves. To a God who does not show favoritism. It doesn't matter who you are, you and your slave are equal before God. These words undo slavery from the inside out. But what's this matter to us? How can a discussion concerning slavery in the first century speak to us today? Well, it's incredibly important, primarily because it does address this topic. Of course, on the one hand, it should spur us on to confront modern-day forms of slavery across the world, should it not? To condemn them, to confront them. But it also speaks directly to each one of us. Maybe you can think about it. The places where we are answerable to someone over us. The places we manage others and their work. The place we spend nearly one-third of our lives. Paul's words impact your job, your vocation. Does that place ever feel like a location you're bound, something you're subject to? Mark Roberts, in his commentary, wonders how these words of Paul might sound to us if you were writing to Western Christians today. He says it might sound a little bit like this. Employees, obey your earthly bosses with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only, when, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as employees of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Work wholeheartedly as if you are working for the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are employees or bosses. Bosses, treat your employees in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is their boss and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. A timely and essential word for us today. How does our faith and our vocation fit together? What do you think? Does your faith have anything to say to your work? Does your work have anything to do with your worship of God? Yes or no? Because if you, here's the thing, friends. If you want to be fully formed followers of Jesus, then how you think about your faith and your job is essential. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to consider two simple truths and a host of implications. Right? It should be a relatively practical sermon, hopefully not boring. But Because this is the point of Paul's passage. How shall we live come Monday morning? Tomorrow morning, the places God has you and puts you, what's it matter? What does this passage mean to matter to that? The first simple truth is that your work matters to God. Yes, even each one of your work, even each one of your vocations. It's not, this isn't unique to me. I think I first heard it from Tim Keller, someone smarter, uh, and then a lot of subsequent authors. And, and it's one of those statements, right, that you can sort of think, okay, yeah, makes sense. Shake your head, yeah. More likely you agree, right, but then Monday rolls around, and that's not really why you work, right? I mean, work is just something to get through, to endure, 
something to pay the bills, something to get you to the weekend or vacation. Because, right, everybody's working for the weekend. Anybody remember that? Amen, right? I'm here to say that's not the proper biblical motivation for work. Rather, your work matters to God. Yes, even your work. And in the church, we don't always get this right, do we? I mean, I remember this moment in youth, when I was a youth, a youth, whatever. We'd get back from church camp. Maybe you guys have a similar experience. We'd get back from church camp. All the kids would come up front. The pastor would say something like this, right? He'd go, we had a great time. God was moving amongst our kids. Three students gave their lives to Jesus. And they'd go, well. And then he'd say this, he'd say, and even more than that, two kids gave their life to full-time vocational ministry. And the whole place is like, yeah. But listen, there's nothing wrong with that announcement. Nothing wrong at all. But as a student, I started to see, I started to get this impression that that the only work that really matters to God is full-time vocational ministry. That if you want to be sold out for Jesus then you need to give your life to full-time vocational ministry. But that's wrong. And it's not to degrade pastoral ministry, I hope. (laughs) It's my vocation. I think it's a good one. (laughs) But it's not the only calling that matters to God. Your work matters to God. This is the motivation for your work. Look at verse 8. This is where we get to the basis Paul says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free, right? Paul's outside of talking about free and slave at this point. And he does two things. First, he points to the work itself and he calls it good. He says, real wealth is not measured by the money that your work brings in, but by the good of the thing produced. Your work is not about compensation, rather your contribution. We're going to touch on that here in a second, but I want to get to the main piece, the main point of Paul's exhortation right here. The motivation for your work is that your work is recognized by God. Your work matters to God. Back in March, Forbes magazine claimed that recognition is the number one thing employees want from their manager. Maybe you disagree. Forbes magazine, what do they know? But the number one thing, and the number one thing that could inspire them to work harder, is recognition. Here Paul is saying that the Lord recognizes your work and will acknowledge it. It's pleasing to him because your work matters to God. Has your work ever felt pointless or thankless? You may have a job where your bosses are not supportive, your coworkers are not nice, The customers are impatient. The cash register rarely works. And the pay is even more depressing. Can you relate? You may think that no one really notices your work. But you have to know that your work matters to God. He sees it. He recognizes it. He knows. But why? 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 I mean, you might think, why would God care about my work? What's that really matter, right? Why would my job matter to God? He doesn't need it. So why? I could spend a lot of time on this. 
But here's just a couple minutes. Your work matters to God because your work is part of his character and created order. From the very beginning, you were created with work in mind. From Genesis to the new heavens, work will exist. Work is not a result of the fall, but in fact came before it. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, right? And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill, all, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, the sea, the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and to keep it before the fall. <laughs> it's called to be fruitful and multiply, right? The procreativity, right? We're all familiar with that. Make babies, be fruitful, all that good stuff. But it's not only procreativity, it's also productivity. And this word and theme is used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to talk about our work and vocation. Because it's something, it's a part of God's created order. I mean, consider, just think about this with me. When God creates a garden, the place of ultimate joy and bliss, it comes with work. I mean, you were created with work in mind. I mean, it seems to be that you can't quite have that joy and that bliss without getting your hands dirty, a little work. But it shouldn't be that strange, honestly. I mean, if we really think about it, it shouldn't be strange. It shouldn't be strange that we are called to imitate a God who creates, a God who works, who works and rests, right? And we, his creatures, live out his character when we also work creatively and we work well. Now, of course, the fall brought along all the ills of work, the thorns and the thistles. Why is your work drudgery? Why sometimes do you just hate your work? Yes, even I hate my work sometimes. Because of the fall. Sin marred fall. It's marred work, sorry. But that's another sermon. Because according to God's original design, work was something God always cared about. So if this is true, what, if this is true, that your work, each and every, I mean, think about what you're going to do tomorrow morning. That matters to God. What are the implications? What might this mean for us tomorrow morning? Number one, take your work more seriously. If God cares about your work, then so should you. And this is hard. I mean, I get it. I... But it doesn't make it less important. 16th century pastor, church reformer, Martin Luther, you know, the guy that had a stein in one hand and a Bible in the other. It's the picture I remember. He's credited with a lot of the thinking and the integration between, behind faith and work. And listen, in his reflection, in his reflection on the way that God answers prayers and provides for his people, he claims that it happens through common everyday work. He'd say, he'd say things like this. He'd say things like, the woman who milks the cow or the farmer who shovels the stalls, they're acting like the very fingers of God in the world, right? Before there was Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs, there was God. He was the first host of Dirty Jobs. And I don't know, personally, I've done that, I've smelled that, and it's really gross. But God says, 
it's work worth doing. Essentially, he's saying that God is loving the world through regular, common, everyday work. You might think your work is worthless, but God sees its benefit. God gives dignity to your jobs. And as we talk about this, we could mention a variety of vocations. But one I want to highlight for a second is the stay-at-home mom. I mean, is there any vocation with worse hours or pay or worse benefits? I want you to know that staying home to raise kids, whatever that looks like for your family, that is a vocation that is no less important, paid or unpaid. Do you take your work seriously? As though God himself thought your work mattered. Because God cares about your work, so should you. Number two, you should not judge yourself or others based on what they do. Right? Understanding that your work and all work matters has this equalizing effect. Because we have this tendency, don't we, to give status to people who have certain jobs based on the cash they make, whatever. It's like, I mean, when you meet someone new, what's the second question you ask? Right? First is name, hopefully. Second question, what do you do? What do you do? You know, shake hands. Right? I love answering that question. But it reveals to us how we find and transmit identity through work. It's a way of giving ourselves and others worth. And then for those who have more vocational worth, we give better treatment or preference. I mean, when you've answered that question, do you qualify it or not qualify it? Are you like, you know, I'm doing this now, but you know, pretty soon I'm hoping to do this, I'm hoping to do this. I'm gonna hear this transitionally, I'm gonna do this. Because we, we have this feeling that's been just transmitted that our work says something about us. Here's the thing. We serve a God who shows no favoritism. To slave or free. It doesn't matter if you are a slave, if you're a boss or an employee. It doesn't matter if you're a waiter, an accountant, janitor, engineer, bank teller, whatever. I mean, have you ever treated someone different based on their vocation, based on their job? God does not look down on you or hold you in higher esteem based on your work or your wealth. God gives dignity to all sorts of jobs. So we shouldn't give others preferential treatment based on their vocation. Thirdly, your job is not about you. Uh, Gene Veith wrote this uh, great little book, Help Understand Calling and Vocation. might be synthesized into three things. Your calling is not for you, it is not from you, and it's not future tense. I mean, he's reframing work, right? That your calling, your vocation, it's for your neighbor, it's from God, and it's right now, wherever you're at. I mean, we all want that job that's like fulfilling and meaningful, a job that pays well and provides leisure time. Here's the thing. The people that have that, they bring that calling with them. It's not something they find in the work. Because in the economy of God, it's not about you or what you get. Last month, you read through Ephesians. Ephesians has work all over it. It's a great book. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, 
doing honest work with his hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Your job is not about what you can get from it, your personal fulfillment, or anything like that. It's not about compensation, rather contribution. A benefit to your neighbor and an honor to God. And this is hard. I mean, this is just, this part of it is really hard. I mean, in our day and age, in our society of, of specializations, of atomizations of work, it's hard to know what the contribution is. But it's kind of like this. A friend of mine, there's a company in KC. It, uh, it makes those oxygen masks that, you know, fall from planes, you know. Um, it's, it's hourly factory work, right? It's hard to know whoever benefits. Until one of my friends was in an aircraft that lost cabin pressure, the masks deploy. He thought it was the end. Well, once the plane normalized, and he subsequently changed his underpants, <laughs> he saw on these uh, air masks that they were created in a factory near his hometown in KC. So he looked them up online, found him, he wrote him a letter. And here's a piece of it. If I may be so bold, I'd like to thank God for the work he has called and equipped your company to do. I know that not many people think that work like this is work that God cares about, but I strongly beg to differ. I believe that God cares deeply for all work that is done well and promotes human flourishing. So again, thank you for your work, and by all means, keep doing what you're doing and do it well for the common good of all. The company ended up having him come out to talk to the employees and the workers. And the whole room was in tears because they had never saw that their work mattered or impacted anybody. Your job is not about you. There's a recognition of God and a gift to others. It's not about your compensation, but focused on contribution. Now, you may get that your work matters to God, right? But what, what about the second truth? Second truth is that God matters to your work. Your work matters to God, and God matters to your work. I mean, does God actually have anything to say to how you do your work, to the manner in which you carry it out? Listen for a second to what Dorothy Sayers says about faith and work. She was a theologian, 20th century, friend of C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, all that bunch. She has several essays about work, but listen to what she has to say. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that, as a result, the secular, world, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. And that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is that astonishing? How can anyone interested in a religion which seems to have no concern over nine-tenths of his life? Then she continues, let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. Ouch. This was 50 years ago. She says that the thing that's wrong with our work 
is that we've taken God out of it. No wonder work can be so corrupt and so evil. And similarly, no wonder people are uninterested in God. He seems not to be concerned himself about my work, the place that I spend the majority of my time. God matters to your work because Christian work is shaped by God. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Paul is explaining how to live out their Christian faith, their new life in Christ, and how it impacts and shapes how they do their work. Their working relationship was of slave and master. Look at this passage. Slaves were to obey their masters, but not just obey. They were to have respect and fear for their masters. They were to serve with sincerity of heart, having a right attitude in work, to do their job as if Christ himself had given them the orders. They were to serve well, not just when they were being seen, not just to please their masters, but to serve well at all times, because they served the one who saw what was both hidden and public, and it was his will, you see that, his will that they serve. Paul has something to say to the, ma- to the masters, right? Do the same things I asked of the slaves. Don't threaten. I mean, don't, don't abuse or take advantage of your workers. I mean, listen, in this context, these slaves were, these bond servants, as the ESV calls it, but they're it's slavery, were in such a position that they might be prone to laziness, to duplicitousness, resentfulness of their bosses, especially because oftentimes a lot of the Slave workers were more intelligent or skilled than their masters were. I mean, what about you? Have you you ever felt smarter than your boss? Be honest. Have you ever been tempted to cut corners, to only work the bare minimum you have to, or tempted toward dishonesty or to compromise your own integrity? Or like the masters, have you been tempted to take advantage of those under your management? under your authority. Paul is telling us that God matters to our work, how we do it. Having a relationship with God should transform how we do our work tomorrow, Monday. So how does God matter to our work? We're going to get to some implications, but first you've got to see that that you're created to work. Only because someone who came, because someone came and completed the work that you could never do. I mean, this series has been about the power of God, has it not? The power of God to save you and to save me. We re- you read, you focused on Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, sort of the core of this, the centerpiece, that while we were dead, Christ died to make us alive. And then Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, right, the key passage, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Listen, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Your salvation is not a result of works. This is the work that you could never complete. But then look what, look what Paul says in the next verse, Ephesians 2.10, right after that. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved you and he saved me and he empowers us today through that salvation, through that work that we could never accomplish. He empowers us to do good work. 
And this means a lot of things, right? But at the very least, it means doing our job well. Jesus has saved you and me from hell. He saved it from hell and damnation and saved us for life everlasting, yes, but also for good works, as Ephesians 2.10 says. Jesus gives you, without this, you just can't have the perspective. Work is meaningless. Work is meaningless without Jesus. Jesus gives you the power to have a new perspective on your work, to endure and to persevere when it seems worthless. Jesus gives dignity to your work so it's something worthwhile. And if you don't know this salvation, Jesus invites you into a new life. He's inviting you into a new life, a life where he is your boss and all your work is for him. So if God matters to your work, what are, what are some implications? How does this matter tomorrow? The list could go on, but let me just give, I think I have four, something like that. Number one is don't worship your work. And this is the first implication because as important as work is, as much as we can stress it, it's not ultimate. It's not God. Notice how service to the Lord, to the Lord, is premier. It's not just work in and of itself. And, and this is a word that we need because for some of us, and I include myself in this list, uh, we like to work. Maybe we love it. And, but if we let it, it'll destroy us. Work, when not in the right place, can be extremely destructive. I mean, how many families or marriages have been destroyed by work? How many health concerns are caused by the stress or the environment of work? How many people have lost an attentiveness toward God because work has become an idol? You see, our passage, serving the will of God, is held supreme. And this is key not only to worship, and this is key to not worshiping our work. Because you might do you might be prone to do all sorts of things in the name of making a buck, in the name of your boss. But when you keep God's will, God himself, as, your, as just the supreme, the ultimate, in front of you, as the one you worship through your work, you will not worship your work, but rather it will be of service to God and to others. Number two, treat your managers or supervisors with deep respect. No one booed that? Okay. Because I might add the tagline, even if they don't deserve it. Look, it's sort, of like a, it's sort of like the show Band of Brothers. There's this classic line, you salute the rank, not the man. You salute the rank, not the man. And look, this can be hard. <laughs> this can be very hard. But God wants you to treat your boss with the same sort of respect that you would treat him with. And your bosses may be thoughtless, arrogant, or rude, but God calls us to, res to give them respect and to honor, and to give them honor. Not above God, or not above God's will, or not to do things that are contrary to God's will, right? But to give them honor and respect nonetheless. Because the flip side of this is don't take advantage of your employees or your customers. 
It seems self-explanatory, doesn't it? But it's got to be said. Have you ever felt taken advantage of at work or as a customer? One of the most powerful, guys, one of the most powerful witnesses that we have as Christians is how we use or abuse power. I mean, at work, how do you speak about your coworkers or your employees? Do you treat your employees with respect? Do you take responsibility or do you pass the buck? Do you cut corners thinking no one will notice? <laughs> Don't take advantage of others in your work environment. And the last implication, do good work. Dorothy Sayers says, the only Christian work is good work done well. Timothy Keller uses an example to explain this, and I couldn't think of anyone better, so I'm going to steal it. He says, uh, he says this. He says, imagine an airplane pilot who really, really wants to be a Christian airline pilot. What does he do? I mean, does it mean handing out gospel tracts as people come through the front? Or maybe, maybe it means singing a hymn over the intercom. No, he says, first and foremost, a Christian pilot lands the plane. Secondly, he lands the plane so that it can be reused again. And if he does have the opportunity to share the faith that saves him, the faith that propels him to do his work well, that's icing on the cake. Church, we must be a people of good work, motivated in our belief that our work matters to God and is shaped by the fact that God matters to our work. And this sort of example, our world needs this. It needs this. J.D. Vance wrote a memoir uh, of, of his sort of coming of age and of his back a memoir called Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, he paints a really fun picture of work uh, for Middleton, Ohio. Describing his hometown, he says this. He says, people talk about hard work all the time in places like Middleton. You can walk through a town where 30% of the young men work fewer than 20 hours a week, and find not a single person aware of his own laziness. Vance then highlights another person who quit his job because he was tired of getting up early, and yet another because the work wasn't important enough, or another who was fired after being late and continually taking 30-minute bathroom breaks. That guy probably needs a doctor. But, but hopefully you can see we can't generalize this to all of America, but he highlights the need for our faith to speak to our work life, for our work to be transformed by our salvation in God. Because, friends, the church, the church should be the house of the best workers in town, the place of the hardest workers, honest workers, fair and truthful workers, not greedy but generous, workers who do their work because they know they're actually doing God's work. Right? What Teachers whose greatest joy is helping student development. Computer programmers who care about how their code benefits society. Construction workers who never cut corners. Mechanics you can trust and rely on. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I rarely feel more taken advantage of than when I'm at the mechanics. <laughs> the best brightest, most dependable workers should come from the church because as believers, we know our work matters to God 
and God matters to our work. Just imagine what our world would be like if this was the case. If your work was shaped by your belief in God. If you did good work as an expression of that belief in God. Just imagine, imagine how people might view the church. A place where life change actually happens. Just imagine how people might have a different perspective on God, his glory, and his honor. Because you can't deny the power of God to transform your life and your work. Just imagine the impact that could come from changing how we view and how we carry out our work. Please pray with me. Father, creator God, the one to whom all majesty and honor is given, thank you for the work of your salvation. Thank you for completing the work that we could never accomplish. May we, your people, be transformed by your salvation. May our work, our vocations, have a new purpose through your eyes. Because without you, without you, work is really kind of pointless. A pointless drudgery of no end. Father, help us bring our callings and our passions into the work that you have for us tomorrow morning. Come Monday, transform our work. May we be faithful stewards. May we honor your name this week in our jobs. It's in Christ's name.